0: Let's just get right down to business. Joe show. This, this is the Joe Roberts Show.
1: The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Ari Pine, the co-founder of Digital Gamma. Digital Gamma is a trading shop focused on the derivatives market. Ari, let's start with some background about yourself, please. Sure,
0: absolutely. First, thanks for having me, Joe. Pleasure to be here. You have quite a collection of guests that I've seen. So hopefully I can add a little bit there. So my background is I started out being trained as an engineer and then went straight into, believe it or not, into finance. I was fortunate enough to get recruited by JP Morgan and I started out there trading fixed income. And then I moved into various derivatives products at exchanges and at hedge funds and so on. And I would say that overall, a constant theme of my career is integrating technology, unsurprising given my engineering background, as well as financial markets, of which a good chunk of my perspective comes from being a market maker or being on the sell side and thinking about the market in that way.
1: Obviously, the markets have changed over the years. So, what are some highlights of uh, since when you first got into what's
0: happening today? Well, I guess I would say that one of the biggest themes is a lot repeats. (laughs) History definitely repeats, right? I think a lot of people these days, uh, if you look on Twitter, you've got pro-crypto people and you've got anti-crypto people. And a lot of the anti-crypto people often come up with this idea about how leveraged the space is, how it can be extremely volatile and so on. But I've had, I, I guess, as a positive, a very long career. (laughs) The downside is it means I'm an old guy. But, you know, even if you go back all the way to like 1994, you've got a marketplace like Repo and a gentleman named Citroen who ran Orange County Finances. And if you go back and take a look at that, what you will see is he completely over leveraged his county (laughs) to the detriment of the citizens of his county but by essentially going into repo and betting, again, unsurprisingly, on very low interest rates and essentially selling options and believing that the future was going to look exactly like the past. Unsurprisingly, that didn't work out well. There was a lot of Very high volatility in what is normally considered a fairly liquid and stable market, which is US Treasuries. But that did cause a lot of problems for a number of hedge funds and a lot of the same sorts of issues that you see today. Even though it may not necessarily be Orange County, it ends up being somebody else who's betting on whatever it was that worked out very well, whether that's something like the Volpocalypse of 2018 or more recently, we've had some trouble with a lot of hedge funds being liquidated. Although to be honest about it, it did not seem like it caused much of a ripple in the market.
1: I mean, leverage is pretty standard across all financial markets and not just to be talked about in the crypto market, right? Absolutely.
0: And the thing about leverage is, of course, that it cuts both ways, right? And there's always a balance between what I like to think of as optimization and robustness, right? And a very robust situation will be where Taleb would call anti-fragile, right? It's built to withstand a lot of volatility and things changing, something that, that he would like quite a bit. And on the other hand is how do we optimize our world for the way that it actually is, right? And what you find in financial markets is that this all sorts of comes about as sort of a filtering process. It's not always that people say, boy, I'd like to leverage up to the gills on a certain product. I mean, sometimes that's definitely the case and you do get some spectacular successes and failures in doing that. But what often will happen is that whatever has been successful will tend to attract more capital. And what has not been successful has those entrants falling out or changing their strategy to something that is successful. And that might be just because, for instance, monetary policy has been a certain way for so many years that you just have to kind of get in line with what the circumstances of our reality actually is. And those that do best when there is a long period of a similar regime are those that take leverage, right? And then you have to follow the leader down that rabbit hole. And I think that. Even though there's a lot of people out there that may be uncomfortable with what they have to end up doing, there's the push and the pull of what should I be doing, maybe what I'd like to do according to theory or what I would like to do, and what are my responsibilities both as a fiduciary and you know keeping my job, <laughs> which are very practical um, and, and required <laughs> thoughts to have in your head.
1: I know there's obviously always conversation on uh, crypto Twitter, we'll call it, in regards to leverage in the markets or kind of justifying the sell-off because of some type of deleveraging. How should investors approach using leverage, and maybe when are some scenarios that it is best for the portfolio to use moving forward, and when is it not best?
0: Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think basically the most important question. Once you've decided that you find a trade that's valuable out there, right, that has some positive expected value, the real key to what you need to think about is how do you size that trade? Because you need to think about the fact that it may go your way and it may go against you for it doesn't matter what reason, right? You know, In late 2019, some really smart people, the guys at GAFCAL, I have a huge amount of respect For those guys, Louis Gave, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, but he's incredibly bright. And he had a particularly good, well thought out (laughs) thesis that treasuries were going to sell off due to inflation, whatever. And then, of course, COVID happened. And you can have the best thought out process, the best thesis, and it can still go against you. And I think that that's particularly important to keep in mind is that as investors, we can be wrong. (laughs) And that's, (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Not us, right? But those other people. And so that's why sizing is the most important aspect when when you're putting on that trade. And then whether you decide to use leverage or not, then there are a number of other reasons that you may or may not want to do that, which may go along with well, maybe I've got some sort of a hedge that's associated with it. Maybe there's an offsetting trade. It's not correlated. Leverage is super cheap or whatever it may be. And so I think that's a secondary question to what happens if things go in a direction that I'm not expecting, right? And it's also not enough to do a look back and simply say, what's the historical ball for that, right? And Actually, digital asset space is perfect for that because at some point, even though you know that a particular trade might converge, right? You've got two assets, or I should say, let's. So, my specialty is in derivatives in crypto. And you'll have two assets that might expire at the same time. And maybe the indices are slightly different, right? But you know, they're probably going to be pretty close. But in the meantime, the price path. For one future on one exchange might go in one direction and the other might go in an entirely different direction simply because capital can't flow easily between the two. Right. And that happens to be a theme that comes about very regularly in crypto for basically because capital doesn't move too well between all the different exchanges. So we're not perfectly anyway. And so because of that, you, You can't really say, well, the typical spread between this is X. It can go wherever. And there's kind of a common expression, like when I speak with other people in the field, and that is, look, it's crypto. Anything can happen. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I think in traditional finance, there's a great comfort in looking at where traditional Price relationships or return relationships or whatever it is that you're looking for ratios or whatever are going to be. And that makes sense to a certain extent, but it also leads to situations where you find managers or traders that have lost significant amounts of money and they say, oh, well, it was a 25 standard deviation move, which obviously is nonsense. But by the way, that doesn't simply because they lost money and it went against them does not always mean that it was a terrible Business bet. Maybe it was a terrible business bet again on the sizing of that. (laughs) But, you know, that's one of those things that people try to throw out there. And I think that it's really good to think about how price pass might develop going forward and having an appropriate defense based on that.
1: Where do you see the crypto derivatives market going in the US? Obviously, this is a big topic, you know, there's probably uh, limitations to where you can actually trade or
0: register as a U.S. person. So the good news about that, in particular in the U.S., I think there are two really big pieces of news that have occurred recently. The first is that the SEC approved the Bit.O. and the Valkyrie ETFs. So what's great about that is, one, there's an ETF, there's something to trade. The second thing is they're based on CME futures. So it doesn't matter what you and I may think about, well, is it a good idea to be based on futures? Is there contango drag? Is there, you know, whatever? That doesn't matter, it's there. So let's move beyond whatever biases we may have on the actual structure of it and say, well, what might that mean for derivatives markets? And it's already had a pretty decent impact. The first is, of course, The open interest on CME Futures has increased markedly. (laughs) And I think that's overall a good thing for crypto overall. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there is a reasonably active, not that I follow it, but I know that it's reasonably active options market on Bit.O. I don't know whether there is on Valkyrie or not, but at least for one of the ETFs, there's an active options market. And I think that that is going to help the CME options market, which has been fairly dormant, even though people do post quotes in it and you can actually trade in it. It is a fairly dormant market as compared to the Deribit options market, which is completely offshore and, of course, reasonably inaccessible by any reasonable means to U.S. investors, which is a real shame. First of all, Deribit's done a great job and I could also, like the futures ETF, talk a little bit about why it might be a bad idea. But again, separating that, the fact of the moment is that Derivit isn't accessible to US investors. So I think the second really big news event is FTX. Now, honestly, FTX just is pretty amazing overall. They, over very few years, have made this essentially global brand. And really even it's been over the past year or two that they've really made a lot of progress. And one of the things that they've done is they built FTX US, which is accessible to US investors. And most recently from one of their many capital raises or very, very, very large capital raises, they purchased Ledger X. So for those that are unfamiliar with LedgerX it is an actual registered derivatives market that has i believe it has perpetuals fixed date futures and options now everything on that is not exactly the way that you're used to trading options let's say on CME because i believe still they're fully collateralized so that does put a little bit of limitation on how much they are used but it's there and it's registered and it's with FTX And my belief is that is going to get expanded aggressively. And I think that's gonna have a lot of, first of all, I think it's gonna be very good for the US crypto investor. I also think that it's going to dramatically change the way that options are traded right now because options are oddly, you would think that options would be a less efficient market than futures in crypto, right? Because it's got the convexity and so it's a more complicated product. But oddly, because it's essentially overwhelmingly traded on Deribit, it's actually pretty efficient compared to the futures, which can be quite disparate across different exchanges and so on. So it's just one place where things get done. I think the fact that there is this barrier between US and offshore markets is bad for consumers, but good for market makers and good for traders that can straddle those barriers right and and that's that's a familiar refrain and again i don't make policy at the sec or the cftc so usually these things nobody cares what i think <laughs> but the, again those are the facts and i do think that moving forward ftx in particular they have a lot of resources they're really smart and they have done a lot of very good work to make their product customer-friendly. Got it. So do you think uh,
1: with LedgerX, I mean, is there a lot of different discrepancy in like the bid to ask maybe compared to Derivit? Like, is there is there a benefit on one of the platforms that you're seeing?
0: Well, it's, it's not so much that there's a benefit. First of all, I don't consider myself an expert on Ledger X. I'm aware of it. I'm aware that FTX bought it. I'm aware of a few of the constraints on it but I don't consider myself a real expert on it. But with that said, yeah, I mean, it's it's less liquid, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad for consumers. Sometimes less liquid can be good for consumers. You just need to know what you're looking at and also understand what it is that you want to get out of the market, right? So that's that's actually something that's fairly important, whether you're trading in crypto on a liquid or illiquid asset but having a good idea of what is value to you.
1: Got it. So, I mean, there's a lot of different, obviously, tokens out there in the DeFi market. I mean, how do you see the derivatives market develop for the whole
0: DeFi as a whole? That's a good question. That's not tokens and DeFi. I've done a fair amount of research into it, but I don't consider myself an expert. What is very, very interesting about DeFi though, is it really is this mad scientist lab of experimentation. And so to that extent, it is unbelievably interesting. It also makes it very risky in a few different ways. And people are trying all sorts of different things. I really encourage people to take a look at it. And there's an endless amount of things to learn. In DeFi, both in terms of the way that people are trying to design spot markets, derivative markets, you know, whether that's the automated market maker model, or whether it's some of these new marketplaces that are trying to handle perpetuals like DYDX or fixed state futures or options and so on. And so they're they're really doing quite a bit. It'll be interesting to see what happens as that market goes. And develops. It reminds me like people complain a lot about traditional finance and all sorts of things like front running and spoofing. By the way, my opinion on spoofing probably runs counter to a lot of people, but in a variety of market manipulation ideas, correct or incorrect, there really are no limitations on DeFi in the way that there's traditional markets, right? So when you look back and you think about all of the Stories that you heard about Abacus in, you know, 2008 and all sorts of various things or the manipulation of various markets uh, like LIBOR and so on. I mean, these are very regulated markets where these participants, even if they had set out to be really nefarious, would not have even imagined quite a few of the things that actually occur in DeFi. So there's some really interesting threads to follow there. Uh, minor extractable value. I think I have that right, but it definitely MEV is something I would really encourage people to take a look at in terms of being an interesting thread of information, understanding what kind of marketplace they're getting into, and potentially if they are fairly sophisticated on the engineering front, potentially interesting from a money-making perspective.
1: All right, well, let's jump into digital gamma,
0: right? And at the basics, what do you guys do and what is your strategy? So Digital Gamma is a derivatives proprietary trading shop. And so what we do is we try to find pricing opportunities in derivatives whether that's fixed date futures, perpetuals or options where there's what we like to think of as structural edge. Structural edge to me means that I can understand why there's in you know a mispricing in something, right? And that might be like something we spoke about before, which is there are isolated pools of order flow. And one customer or set of customers may only have access to a particular venue to participate on. And if it turns out that there's uh, buying interest on one exchange or one venue and selling on a different one, then there's an opportunity for somebody that has the ability to trade on both to take advantage of that and do two things one hopefully make a little money for ourselves and two, also help out the market because it's not really helpful to the market or to the participants that are trying to sell at disparate prices that they're disparate prices right so it is in fact contributing to market efficiency and that is something that we think of in what we do now do you
1: find these uh, are you finding this more in the crypto markets obviously than the traditional markets or kind of where is your
0: focus today our focus is basically, while we do pay attention to what's going on in traditional markets, whether that's the global macro outlook or just comparative yields or that sort of thing, really our focus is on crypto because that's really right now where there's active inefficiency, I guess I would put it as.
1: Yeah, it's good. I mean, how long, how long does that typically stay in a market? How long do you participate you know, that can still
0: take that trade? That is a super interesting question. So we like to say it's very difficult to predict.
1: I'll always. <laughs> especially in the future.
0: <laughs> so thank you, Neil Bohr. But one thing that's working in our favor is the fact that the regulators are, I don't know what the right term is, ambivalent or they've taken a stance that has essentially perpetuated the ability for the market to stay in a young form for a while. And so one of the very noticeable characteristics of crypto is the yields can be extremely high. <laughs> People have trouble borrowing fiat typically, although not always, sometimes it can go the other way. So first of all, that is a characteristic of a young sort of emerging market, which I think is a reasonable sort of mental model for thinking about crypto. and the pipes to the banks or the liquidity that is out there is certainly not complete. And to the extent that firms, whether like ours or others, can be out there and supply fiat to the market kind of dictates where interest rates are. So it's a, it actually is a price sensitive and market-clearing type of market, you know, something an Austrian school economist could appreciate, right? But one day that will get hooked up. I'm sure the banks are very interested in getting involved, or certainly parts of the banks are interested in participating in some of the trading. And I think that once that really gets fully done, that's going to be when the game is over. But I still think there's a lot of room to run. And it's also... Anytime that there are a lot of competing exchanges, it's going to be a little bit less efficient for a variety of reasons, if nothing else. Everyone, no matter how how much you have, there's a limited set, other than maybe the Federal Reserve, there's a limited amount of capital to put on various exchanges and and participate. So at some point, you've done all you can do. (laughs) And you got to wait until you can reload. And so that's going to be I would expect it's going to be with us for a while, but the signal that it's going away is that the banks, especially the U.S. banking system is getting involved. So the more regulatory clarity we see, the harder it's going to be for me. <laughs>
1: hey, but I think that's going to take a little while, right? So how are you guys structured or you know, what size team do you guys have to deploy these strategies?
0: We are a team of five. I'm very fortunate to work with the people that I've got. My business partner is Paul Sachs. We know each other from trading commodity options in the precious metals in New York. And we have, well, I at least have a huge amount of respect for him. Uh, And he's a really good risk taker and has been honestly uh, a great partner to have. Our third person is somebody that we've known for a long time, Roman Lee. He's been somebody that actually it turned out that both Paul and I have known for a while and I worked with for a long time trading options on CME and on CBOE. And then we've picked up a couple of new guys, Jack and Ryan. And Ryan is an extremely talented coder, really more than a coder. He's been extremely helpful in advancing both Jack and definitely myself in terms of our level of coding. And Jack is just an all-around talented guy in terms of trading and coding and reinventing himself and just overall being super helpful to our crew. And I think that's a huge advantage for what we've got. Um, In crypto, it's extremely important to have the technical background so that you can build the tools because a lot of times the tools that you need are not out there or they're different than what you might have purchased or had in traditional finance it's very hard to find third-party software that will do exactly what you need or for the exchanges that you want or for the assets. And sometimes it's just little particulars that can make the tools need to behave very differently. So for instance, if you're trading on Globex, on, on CME, you pay the same whether you place a bid and add liquidity or whether you just lift the offer or hit the bid. In crypto, there's a very very large difference between placing an order in the book that gets executed immediately and one that does not. It is called the maker-taker system. So if you go in and you take liquidity, right, you lift the offer and you want to buy some Bitcoin, for instance, you pay significantly more for that than adding liquidity to the book. That means the behavior of the participants is both rational, but also extremely different than what you might find on CME. There's a huge incentive to not simply take liquidity. So that means that the tools that you need in order to have good execution might be very different than what you might have used otherwise, meaning in traditional finance.
1: Got it, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of, obviously a lot of people are hiring in crypto blockchain, right? Any tips on like getting the right strategic hires and
0: maybe how you guys source your team? Well, all of our team is either people that we know directly. Like, so for instance, obviously, Paul and I founded this together. Yep. Norman is somebody that I've trusted since 2006, I think. And we've worked very closely together. So especially when you have a small team, having that level of trust is extremely important. And at this point, because we are a very small team, everything is really based on personal recommendation and one degree of separation as compared to setting things up right you know in a strategic sort of what you would think of as a corporate hiring type of strategy i think actually i think this goes overall the kinds of things that i like to see in in people that i'm working with is sort of a natural curiosity and a little bit of grit in terms of sitting down and saying oh uh, you know there's something there that doesn't quite make sense to me. And nine times out of ten, it's because of me. <laughs> but one time in ten, you're going to start doing what I call unraveling the sweater, right? So, yeah, I'm just gonna just gonna pull on that and, and, and see where it leads. And I think if you can find that in somebody, I think that's far more important typically than let's say a set of particular skills, at least on a small team. You know, sometimes you just need somebody that can do a certain task on a larger team.
1: How did you guys first, I guess, kind of transition into crypto and what kind of prompted that start? Kicking and screaming
0: is basically what happened in in my particular case. I was trading futures quantitatively and Paul kept poking me on the shoulder and saying, look, you're trying to like figure out edge to the sixth decimal place here. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, you know, (laughs) you've got a 40% price discrepancy um, between Korea And Japan. And to be honest about it, I probably should have jumped in far sooner. And when we initially got into it, we thought, oh, you know what? When you're a trader, you're only as good as your last trade. But the clearing firm, they make money all the time, right? Your broker makes money all the time. And so what we initially set out to do was to build like prime services and and be a broker for professional traders and institutions. And we did build all of those things, but it turned out that. The need for it, particularly up until now, hasn't been as great as one would have imagined. And I think the the tale of Tagomi kind of is illustrative of that. I mean, that was sort of the dream team of people, and, and you know, they raised great money and they had great relationships, and it was tough even for them. And I think that represents a fundamental reality of crypto, which is a whole story unto itself. But then we went to focus on tri-party repo in crypto. We thought, oh, well, you know what? Everybody really needs a way to borrow and lend assets in the space. And furthermore, there are no credit ratings. There's no audited financials, in particular at that time. There weren't public companies, especially at that time. Now we're starting to see some of that. But how do you measure credit risk? So we thought, oh, you know, it it makes a ton of sense to do everything collateralized. And rather than having people do over-collateralization one way, right? So you'll you'll see a lot of times people will say, you know, we over-collateralized all our loans. So we had this saying that one one entity's over-collateralization was their counterparties under. (laughs) (laughs) And so what we were trying to do is have a, a process where we were the third party and both would put their additional, right, you would you would swap collateral of equivalent value. And then on top of that, you would put some margin against that with digital gamma. But it turned out for the most part that in crypto, at least up until now, people don't care too much about credit risk. And so eventually we decided that despite the fact that there were extremely high yields associated with that, that it probably made more sense to focus on trading. And over this past year, we've done that transition.
1: When it comes to market efficiency, obviously the interest rates proposed in DeFi are a lot higher than the traditional banks. Where is all that yield coming from, right?
0: This is the question everybody always asks. Okay. So there's a couple of different things. There's yield in crypto, there's yield in DeFi, and so on. So a lot of to- a lot of the yield in DeFi is driven by the auto- automated market maker model. People pull their money together in various forms, and they form an exchange. And in order to transact on that exchange, the customers of that exchange, which really aren't talked about all the time. So I I find that sort of an interesting scenario. People talk a lot about funding the pools, but they don't talk a lot about the customers, which is kind of an odd thing, I think. But where you get paid for in that space is one- You're backing an exchange. That's the way that you should think about it. And secondly, you're backing a market maker, right? It's an automated market maker, but it's a market maker, right? And those are typically pretty good businesses, right? The exchange is going to make money on its fees. Again, typically a good business. Market maker typically gets paid money on essentially what you think of as mean reversion or selling vol. Also, typically a good business. And in particular, these automated market makers on the exchanges are a monopoly situation. So despite the fact that we call it DeFi or decentralized (laughs) finance, you you cannot put in your own limit orders or compete or any of those things. It is only the automated market maker. So that's typically where you get your yield from, and you're assuming a certain amount of risk, right? So it's unsurprising that backing a market maker is going to give you a short vol profile. And in fact, that's exactly what you see. The DeFi community likes to give it a very calm-sounding name. They call it impermanent loss, right? I just call it the mark to market that you're gonna have because if you sell an asset as a market maker and it keeps going higher, it hurts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward, right? And so you're taking that mark to market risk and you're hoping that eventually your book will come back into balance as sellers enter the market, right? But that doesn't exactly work that way as an automated market maker. And and so those are the sources of yield going into that. And in some cases, the yield, I think, is, in many cases, it's unwarranted. But sometimes it's, (laughs) it's from the high side, and sometimes it's from the low side. And so I'll see very high yields in some very odd token pairs that I would not want to be a market maker in. And so I find that it's insufficiently high. On the other hand, you'll go and take a look and you'll see like stablecoin pairs that are both supposed to be a dollar and those will be very high. Now, certainly you're taking the risk of what market makers in Chicago used to call, probably still do, picking up nickels in front of the steamroller, right? You know, maybe Tether breaks down, maybe USDC, whatever, right? You know, some crazy event where the stablecoin breaks the buck. But those yields to me, typically, you know, and I, I'm not looking at the yields in front of me right now. So, you know, of course, anything goes without saying, or now I will say it, do your <laughs> own research. Those can be rather high relative to the risk. However, I think generally speaking, yields in crypto are very high. And I think the reason well, there's a very big reason for that. It's typically starved of fiat, right? It's often like there's a supply of Bitcoin out there and people are willing to use that to raise funds. So what you can do in crypto is you sell your spot Bitcoin, but you don't want to give it up. So you buy futures against it because it's a resource starved environment as compared to the federal reserve's flooding of money, especially into the asset markets, it has the appearance of looking very high. But again, that makes a lot of sense. You're not looking to get into crypto for an additional 10 basis points, right? That's not particularly compelling because, you know, first of all, there's a benchmark and understanding of risk of earning, you know, 10,000% because I bought, you know, depending on how you like to say it, Dogecoin, coin, you know, SHIB, I don't know, not the places that I really participate, but there's an expectation that that, you know, of what can you get in crypto? And so people don't necessarily like to participate to earn a few percent. So I think those are a few of the reasons that you'll see these high yields, as well as the credit risk, where credit risk can be not only a stand-in for what we think about credit risk in traditional finance, but also what people talk about when they say smart contract risk or open source software risk or whatever you want to call it, right? There's quite a few places where there's uncertainty in crypto.
1: What's your thoughts on how the majority of the world will onboard? I mean, do you think they're going to end up not the crypto native, you know, users, but the the other part, are you think they're going to come through their regular banking app and have access to these types of DeFi yields or what ultimately are we looking at in five years? How the world's going to be onboarded?
0: I don't think DeFi is going to look like what it looks like right now in five years. It would be very surprising to me if that did not get regulated. It's going to be an unpopular thing in crypto of what I'm about to say, but it's very difficult. Every time crypto argues and says, we don't need the regulation in DeFi, and everything, I mean, literally within 24 hours, there's another hack, right? Customers are losing their funds and so on. So the trouble is, he has a point. (laughs) And to the extent that the industry itself is probably not doing a sufficiently good job, really because it's a young industry, of protecting its consumers. And the consumers, for the most part, are okay with it because there's an expectation, there's a lot of risk, I'm going to put some small amount of money. My goal is to make 10,000% and those lottery tickets show up with sufficient frequency. And also there's just so much money entering the market. And I don't mean necessarily into Bitcoin itself, although there is, but I mean into the firms that are going around it. And there's so much investment and just so much venture money. It's not always exactly venture, but there's just so much money in that sort of allows a lot of companies to, what people like to say, fail forward, right? You know, you've got a lot of runway because you've got such wind at your back. Even if you're not getting, even if you're not the direct beneficiary of that money coming in, there are opportunities around, you'll have time to adjust or whatever, you know, that sort of thing.
1: So do you think the Fed's actions that they announced of increasing interest rates and tapering more going into next year, do you think that's going to have an impact on the crypto markets and the traditional markets as a
0: whole? I do. Oh, you kind of want me to add a little more to that.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess on, uh, you know, let's go into the tapering and the basis points increases. How do you think that may affect the economy in general? Start there and then work our way down.
0: Well, the big news is what Manchin did yesterday which is put the kibosh on the fiscal policy. So whatever it is that you had thought was going to be the plot going forward, which is a shift from monetary policy to fiscal policy, which, to be honest about it, I think is a far better mix, but that seems to be shelved for now. Whether there's going to be another run at it, I don't know. That's not really my area of expertise. but. It also remains to be seen whether the Fed is actually going to go through with tapering, let alone raising interest rates. But the base case had, I mean, prior to that, been that there's going to be the shift from financial assets, which paper assets have been king or queen since 2009, because monetary policy has come in. The way that monetary policy has worked in particular is that it helps the largest entities whether that's corporations, governments, or just wealthy individuals, that's where that money has flowed in because it's gone to buying assets or supporting banks and so on. And those people don't spend money in the real economy in the same way that less wealthy people do. They have stuff. They're just trying to get more stuff. And when you're trying to get more stuff, you invest it in the market and that, then you have the realities of, of what you call Tina, right? There is no alternative. So you keep buying equities and high yield and crypto and whatever else makes sense. But as you transition over to fiscal policy, that actually gets money into the hands of people that are actually going to go out and spend it, right? You know, they may be living month to month. And for them, that's the difference of, hey, I can go out and buy a TV or whatever. And if they're actually going to spend it, that has a very different impact. On what people like to call the money multiplier in, you know, when you're talking about inflation and monetary policy and and so on. And so I had thought that was going to be a very positive effect overall for the economy, although potentially inflationary. I don't know what the political realities of why that got shot down or whether that will get revisited, you know, oh, if you get me more pork for my state or whatever, (laughs) who knows, that's not my thing but that could change things. So I'm not so sure that tapering is going to happen at this point in any real capacity, which is, I think, overall bad because using monetary policy is not, it's essentially supply-side economics. We don't have a problem with supply. We have a problem with demand. And Michael Pettis wrote a really nice piece on this. And also, For those who like historical comedians, Will Rogers said much better to give money to the poor because they're going to go out and spend it. And by nightfall, it'll be in the hands of rich people. But in the meantime, it'll have gone through a number of iterations. And I do subscribe to that. Like, It's not so much that supply side economics doesn't have its place. It's just that we don't need more supply of stuff, right? We have had for the past, 20, 30 years, an increasing amount of supply considerations. People build factories, whether it's in China or Vietnam or Mexico, not necessarily in the U.S., which is another political issue, not my job, but in terms of getting demand. And so you'll see a lot of businesses say, oh, we're not going to invest in capital infrastructure because we're not seeing the demand. So that was my hope, at least. And I think that even though it is not perfect, probably a better recipe than simply shoveling more money into uh, low rates.
1: So based on their announcements and where they they might take it, we don't really know until it happens, right? I mean, how do you judge where we're at
0: in the cycle and what might actually happen over the next 12 to 24 months? I mean, I think we need to see what's going to happen with this fiscal policy. I think that the Federal Reserve was predicating its actions on... The fact that there was this extremely large infrastructure project that it looked like it was going to pass, that it looked like it was having support. And now that's at least uncertain. So I think that's been a bit of the repricing that has been going on. And people are trying to figure out what the calculus to all of this is. The reality for assets is that, at least thankfully, if you wish to. Take advantage of it, you can pay a rather small amount in terms of where volatility is to ensure your assets, whether that is looking at like some of the products that are now available that allow you to look at fixed income volatility. Harley Baseman, who I think provides excellent commentary and has one of these products in his simplify. And there's there's by the way, there's multiples of these that now allow you to get involved in fixed income volatility and getting long vol in the interest rate market, which is at multi-year lows, by the way, also has been. (laughs) That is one particular way of trying to alleviate some of the risk that might be in your portfolio. And I think the other is looking at alternative assets, such as crypto, where the yields are significantly higher. So, I mean, it's paid off well for those that have kind of been long in
1: crypto and obviously the right assets, but Do you think that kind of continues over the next year or two? Or do we kind of look at the cycle theory? Do you have any take on where
0: the market may go? That's, again, that's not my particular specialty. I think what's particularly attractive about the crypto markets is the fact that these are inefficient markets and that there is a role for people that can have a certain level of expertise in what is going on, understand how to manage risk, and work on getting access to a variety of different markets and linking them together and providing the service that is sort of implied in so much of traditional markets. So to me, I think that's the main opportunity. It isn't as obvious to me where, let's say, the US dollar will go or, you know, Bitcoin can get very adopted and it doesn't mean that its price needs to go to 500,000 or 20,000 or whatever. I think it works regardless of that. And I think that we probably are going to find some third currency that people are going to want to use for a variety of reasons, whether that is looking at it for tourist purposes, right, I want to travel. I'm sure you've gone traveling, right? And you go to these different foreign exchange changing and the bid-ask spread on these things is massive. So there's a tremendous drag for going to different countries, and obviously people aren't traveling as much these days, sadly. But I think that people really benefit from having a third currency like that. And the second thing is, I think like El Salvador's move, you know, adopting Bitcoin makes a lot more sense these days than it did, let's say back in the day when Hong Kong adopted a US dollar board, right, a currency board. Because I think that there's a tremendous interest and motivation these days to be neutral to both the US and to China. Right, If I have a need where I want to demonstrate that I have a serious commitment to avoiding local currency devaluation, so I want to adopt something else or link to a certain currency, then it probably makes sense not to choose the dollar or the RMB because I don't want to pick sides. I would like to trade with both countries.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we covered probably a lot for today. So let's also leave off with our final question. That is the uh, biggest thing you
0: have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth. For me, I would say my own businesses. So believing in myself and, you know, working hard on that, investing in oneself is probably the best, you know, and what I tell my kids, right. You want to invest in yourself, whether that is anything from reading a lot to taking classes, to investing in your own business, whatever that might be. And you know, it's going to be different for everybody. I might have advice for you, but I don't know your own particular <laughs> situation and you're going to know that best. And and I even say that to my to my kids who are now young adults, but overall I would say think of yourself as a business even if you're working for somebody else and how can you invest in yourself so that over time that investment becomes compounded. Different stages of life, that means different things, right? It might be building a set of skills, building relationships and network or founding a business or whatever it might be.
1: I appreciate sharing that. And for our, our listeners, what is the best way to
0: learn more about Digital Gamma or yourself? Well, I'm on Twitter. My handle is Breakeven, which is at STD underscore DEV for standard deviation, leaving uh, my statistical interest and digital-gamma.com. And you know, we put out a weekly market commentary with chart books and some of my thoughts on where the derivatives markets are. You can go onto Digital Gamma and just sign up for it. It's free, price is right. And uh, check it out, say hello. Tell me you, you like it or I'm full of it. Either ways, want to hear from you.
1: There's always a commentary about it, both sides, right?
0: So one of the things that I like to say is I can't fix it if I don't know it's wrong.
1: That's right. That's right. Just take it with a grain of salt sometimes, right? <laughs> <laughs> At least, yeah. All right. Appreciate coming on today. And uh, it was great information you shared with us. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Joe. The Joe Robert Show.